Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. So hey, we're going to jump into our scripture today. So if you have your phone or a Bible, the scripture will be on the screen if you want to follow along. We're going to be in a usual text around here. We're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 22. So in verse 15, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. Um, Okay, I have one more baby-related thing. Um, We have another announcement. I'm not pregnant. Um, <laughs> or with twins, but Jordan Foxwell and Laura Foxwell are pregnant with twins. Yeah, which is so exciting. Jordan is our kids pastor. So some of you are like, why haven't I seen Laura in a while? Because she has twins in her belly. So she is staying safe and staying home. Um, but we're really excited for them. Two little girls coming this winter. Woohoo. If you uh, see Jordan, he's back in the kids hallway because he always is back in the kids hallway, but give him a high five and a Hello. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, uh, thank you for this room. And thank you for these people, and I'm just grateful for a moment together, moments together. Um, We believe that you're with us, but we ask you to wake wake us up to the presence of your spirit in this room. You are good to us. I pray that we would wake up to that in a new way. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, During this season here at the Vineyard, we have been uh, trying to very intentionally put ourselves in uh, what we've called close proximity uh, to Jesus, that we would be close enough to Jesus, uh, to the, the things that he is and to the things that he's about, um, close enough that, that those things would rub off on us. And I don't know about you, but I have really, really loved the last few weeks because I, I really like Jesus and I like talking about him, which bodes well for my profession. So 
you know, it's a good thing. Um, but sometimes when talking about Jesus or like writing to try to talk about Jesus, um, it feels like I'm trying to explain something that is uh, beyond explanation, like explain something that is incredibly unexplainable. Um, and so I read an essay uh, a while back that made me laugh very hard because it uh, captured what, how it feels to sometimes stand on a stage and try to explain things uh, that are, are like these great unexplainable things. And so I want to read you part of this essay uh, because I think it's hilarious. But before I do that, I want to say that just because I'm reading something does not mean it is a blanket endorsement of everything this person has ever produced. Um, when I Sometimes I'm like, oh, you should read this book. You should read it so much. I'll buy it for you if you read it. I'm not going to buy you this book or tell you the title of it um, because <laughs> this is not an endorsement, but it is a very funny um, essay. So uh, this essay comes from a writer named David Sedaris. So some of you know who it is, and now you get why I'm not endorsing. Um, and so I'm going to try to read this without injuring myself, because the first time I read it, I hurt myself laughing. Uh, this guy is aggressively not a Christian, uh, but he nails down what is sometimes very hard to try and explain. Um, so the context here is that David uh, has moved to France, and he's in language school in France. And language school has not gone well for him. It's an immersion class, so they only are allowed to speak French in this class. And on this particular day, they're talking about holidays, but they have to talk about holidays only using French words, which I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's incredibly difficult. I uh, took French in college after only taking Spanish before that, and it was so hard. Um, our final exam was an oral exam, and we had to talk for three minutes about our sibling and what our sibling liked to do. And the way I prepared for that is I looked up as many words that did not have a French equivalent as I could. So I was like, my brother's really into rollerblading and milkshakes and things that only have English words. And so I do this whole oral exam, and when I finish, the teacher looks at me and she says, do you realize you just did the entire thing in Spanish? And I said, nope. I did not. And she said, if I give you a B in this class, do you promise to never take French again? And I said, yes. And she said, you mean we? And I said, I don't know what that word is. So <laughs> French is a very uh, difficult language. Um, and so I'm going to read this essay. It's called Jesus Shaves. Uh, remember, they can only use words they know in French to answer the question. He says this. We finished discussing Bastille Day, the holiday, and continued our lesson about holidays with Easter, which was represented in our textbook by a black and white photograph of a chocolate bell lying on a bed of palm fronds. And the teacher said, what does one do on Easter? Would anyone like to tell us? An Italian nanny was attempting to answer the question when a Moroccan student interrupted, shouting, excuse me, but what is an Easter? Despite having grown up in a Muslim country, it seems she might have heard it mentioned once or twice, but no. I mean it, she said. I have no idea what you people are talking about. The teacher then called upon the rest of us to explain. A Polish couple led the charge to the best of their ability. It is, said the woman, a party for the little boy of God who call himself Jesus. And, oh, I can't say the word she says, uh, bowling word. She faltered and her fellow countrymen came to her aid. Uh, he said, he call himself Jesus and then he died one day on two morsels of lumber. <laughs> the rest of the class jumped 
imagine offering bits of information that would have given the Pope an aneurysm. <laughs> he die one day, then he go above my head to live with your father. When another one said, he weared the long hair, and after he died the first day, he come back here for to say hello to the peoples. <laughs> someone, someone else said, he nice the Jesus. He bring us the good things, and on Easter we be sad because somebody make him dead today. Part of the problem had to do with grammar. Simple nouns such as cross and resurrection were beyond our grasp, let alone the complicated reflexive phrases of to give of yourself your only begotten son. <laughs> Faced with the challenge of explaining the cornerstone of Christianity, we did what any self-respecting group of people might do. We talked about food instead. <laughs> Easter is a party to eat for the lamb, the Italian nanny exclaimed. One, too, may eat for the chocolate. And who brings the chocolate, the, the teacher asked. I knew the word, and so I raised my hand saying, the rabbit of Easter. He bring of the chocolate. My classmates reacted as if I had attributed the delivery to the Antichrist. They were mortified. A rabbit? The teacher, assuming I'd used the wrong word, positioned her index fingers on top of her head, wiggling them as though they were ears. You mean these are rabbit rabbit? Well, sure, I said. He'd come in the night when one sleep on a bed. <laughs> with, a hand, with a hand, he had the basket and the foods. The teacher sadly shook her head as if this explained everything that was wrong with my country. <laughs> I, I love this story so much. It keeps going, but we don't have time. Um, but, it, yes, we do. <laughs> but it feels so uh, familiar to me because sometimes the things that we've heard the most, the things that we feel maybe feel the easiest or we have the most experience with sometimes are the hardest things to try to explain uh, to someone else. For me, one of those things is our text today that Chad just read from Colossians 1. Um, he said it as a familiar verse. I'm not sure we've preached on any group of scriptures more than Colossians 1. I, legit, I looked back and I think I've preached it five times in one year and Chad's done two or three. I mean, we, we talk about it all the time and yet there's so much from Colossians 1 that feels uh, completely unexplainable. Like it's so much in this little chunk of verses and it's so beautiful. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the living, breathing fullness of God in presence. God, Jesus is present and supreme over all creation and God's path of reconciliation and peace uh, for everything on heaven in heaven and everything on earth. It is so much and it's so beautiful. I think that Colossians 1 reads like this uh, gorgeous poem, um, this triumphant declaration about who Jesus is. The whole thing, the whole poem, it centers around Jesus, but it also is like inextricably linked to God, inextricably linked to the Father, which I think might have something to do uh, with the hard-to-explainness of this passage. Uh, there's, there's something that comes up a lot when I meet with people, when I meet with you, when I meet with people from the community or have spiritual conversations with people. Um, and it may be something that you've said or thought or heard, um, but I hear this a lot. I hear something along the lines of, uh, I really like Jesus, but I don't really know what to do with God. 
Or, I really like the New Testament. Do we have to read the Old Testament? You know, something along those lines, or I like the God of the New Testament, but not the God of the Old Testament. He's awful. And, and while I understand uh, and relate to this struggle with God, to the struggle with the God of the Old Testament, it, it seems to me that putting ourselves in close proximity to Jesus means that essentially we have to deal with our feelings about God. Because our, in our scripture today, and plenty more like it, it seems to say that Jesus is God. And that God's fullness dwells in Jesus. And so it makes sense to me that we would need to deal with that if we are going to uh, have the things of Jesus uh, rub off on us. Uh, This struggle between uh, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, it's it's not a new struggle. It's not something that's just like a 21st century thing. In fact, uh, it dates, uh, from what I can find, uh, all the way back to the 2nd century. So like, Uh, Not even that long after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, there's a theologian named uh, Marcion. And Marcion developed this theory that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different beings all together. And I believe that this Marconian theory uh, has kind of had a resurgence in American Christianity uh, today, in American thinking today, where the separation between the God of the Old Testament, that, it, that he is mean and he is scary, that the God of the Old Testament's desire is to punish people and to condemn them. But then Jesus comes and he brings this, this new God, this uh, new God who's nice and palatable, who just wants to love people and forgive them. He nice the Jesus. <laughs> But this theory, while it's widespread in Christian thinking, and honestly, probably in plenty of us in the room, um, it, it, and I say this with love, it's really problematic thinking. Uh, because this theory of mean God and good God is honestly a really small view of Jesus, and it's a really small view of God. And so uh, part of that is because if God is bad and Jesus is good, the problem is uh, that Jesus many times claims to be God. So today I want to quickly look at who God says he is, uh, who Jesus says God is, and how I think it's important to heal our image of God. And we're going to do it in just a few minutes. So brace your, put on your seatbelt. We're going to go fast. Um, I read this week that in the ancient world, um, knowing the name of a deity meant that some, you had, an individual had power over the deity. So to name the deity meant that there was a sense of control around the deity. Like you could grasp a God if you could name a God. And so it's very interesting to me. The first time we see God name himself uh, is a story very early in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus chapter 3 uh, when God speaks to Moses. Uh, we talked about this last week when we were talking about the table. Um, Essentially, at the time, the Jewish people are in captivity in Egypt. They are under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians. And God comes to Moses in a burning bush. You should read Exodus 3, y'all. It is bonkers and fun reading for your week. Um, God, he comes to to Moses in this burning bush, and he, uh, he says to Moses, he says, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cries. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them from Egypt and bring them um, out of their captivity and into this wide and broad land overflowing with milk and honey. And then God starts to give Moses his plan. And Moses says, that's amazing. Well, they do a little back and forth. And then Moses finally says, that's amazing. Um, But uh, when the people ask, who is the person saving them? What do I tell them your name is? You know, 
burning bush? Like, what's your name? And um, God answers in the strangest way. He gives Moses a name, but it is a wild one. One that no one could hold or tame or control or have any power over. He says, tell them my name is I am. What's my name? I am. It is a wild answer. Uh, There's a Hebrew professor named Robert Alter who says a better translation for I am, the Hebrew I am, would be I will be who I will be. What's my name, Moses? I will be who I will be. It is so interesting to me that the first time God names himself in the scriptures, he gives an incredible amount of insight, not just into what to call him, but into who he is. God will be who God will be. And I think the inverse is also true. God will not be anything he does not wish to be. That's his answer. Who is God? He says, I am the I am. And then what he does is God does what he says he'll do. And he rescues him. He rescues the people of Israel. And he brings them into the wilderness and, and, and into good land flowing with milk and honey. He does exactly what he says he'll do. And as we read these things, that's the story of the Old Testament. As we read these things, uh, what happens and, and what has been happening is that the discovery of God throughout the entire Old Testament takes place within the context of his relationships with these people, the people of Israel. He's called uh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God spends decades revealing himself within a history and from his relationship with his people, with this whole people group. Uh, there's a guy named Seth Bouchelle who is a good buddy of our friend Josh Armstrong, who's the missionary at our church. And he lives in New York City, and he has influenced so much of my thinking around this. And he says, when God wants to reveal something about himself and about his own idea or his own identity, most often he does it in relationship. How does God show who he is in relationship? And as a relational animal, I love this about him. But it's also very tricky. It's very tricky because God revealing himself in relationships with humans means that God worked with humans and he worked within the story of humans. And I don't know if you know many humans, but they are bonkers. You're bonkers. (laughs) Me too. And and so what it means is that choosing to be in relationship with God, uh, choosing to discover and explore the identity with God also means choosing to inherit his history and his relationships, some of which are amazing and some of which are the opposite of amazing. They're horrible. The Old Testament is full of this stuff, wonderful things and not so wonderful things. But it's the revelation of a God with his people. A revelation of a God in relationship with them, in relationship with his people. And this relationship, these stories, they go all through the years and they lead all the way up to Jesus. God's own son, who Bill Johnson calls his perfect theology. He says if we want to talk, if theology is talking about God, then talking about Jesus is talking about God. And Jesus, he he does something similar. He begins to, in relationship, live out his own stories. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about when Jesus' disciples were on the boat. Uh, Do you remember this? And the storm is coming, and then uh, he comes walking out to them on the water, but they don't know who it is, so they just see this, like, thing that they think probably is a ghost coming at them. And they say, who are you? And John in his gospel tells us that Jesus replies, don't be afraid, I am. 
Who are you? They say. And he replies with the very wild name of God, I am. God will be who God will be. For the first time in John's gospel, Jesus uh, claims his own name, and he claims to have the name of the God of Israel. He says it here for the first time, but then Jesus, he claims it over and over and over again. Uh, Seth Buchel, to quote from him again, says that this is the crux of the Christian faith, that it's at this intersection uh, uh, of Scripture as God declares who he is. He doesn't uh, hand his people a set of theological ideas or a creed or another book. Instead, to declare who he is, he hands his people a person. When God wants to reveal himself in all of his fullness, he doesn't choose words. He chose Jesus. To quote Seth, he says, God will be who God will be, and he chose to be Jesus, the Christ, the only one to whom God has ever given God's own name to. How is it that we know what God is like? How do we discover God? Uh, We look at Jesus, at the stories and the relationships and the actions and the words of Jesus, uh, how do we heal the image of God, the God of condemnation and the God of fear? We look at Jesus. And I think that healing is incredibly important. Uh, my most favorite writer, at least today, because I'm talking about him, um, Brennan Manning, he says that part of his drive to heal the image of God in his life uh, came from learning how to follow the first of the Ten Commandments. So uh, when God delivers his people from Egypt uh, with Moses, they, they, they get out of exile or they get out of captivity and they end up in this wilderness and they create this new society. And, um, and uh, God helps bring order to this society. He brings Moses up on top of this mountain and he gives him these directions of order. And so uh, Moses comes down the mountain with these 10 commandments of order for society. And the first of those commandments goes like this. I am. That's how it starts. I am the Lord your God. You can have no other gods but me. God will be what God will be, and you may have no other gods but me. And Manning says that we have to understand that this isn't just a command uh, against making other things gods in our lives, though it is partially that. It's also a command that we review and inspect and reject the false things we believe about who God is. God will be who God will be, but God will not be who he does not wish to be. And so there is work of healing in us that we reject the false things that we believe about God. It is the first commandment given to God's people. It means learning how to look at the things that we believe about God and weigh them in light of Jesus the Christ. Rejecting the false images of God by turning our eyes to the visible expression of him. To the place where God's fullness and most true was made uh, to live. uh, To the place where God made peace with everything in heaven and everything on earth. Jesus, he spent so much of his ministry doing this exact thing. So much of the ministry and the stories that Jesus tells are about rejecting false images of God that his people had started uh, to believe. Uh, I read a writer this week that said it is the formational work that Jesus was doing in his followers. The formational work. He says things like, you've read this your whole life, but I say this. And Jesus, he, he teaches in parables. We talk about them a lot around here, stories that widen and reframe God's image. He tells parables like uh, there's one in Matthew 20 where Jesus takes this really common story that the rabbis had told for years and years, and he turns it on its head. 
It's a story, uh, you may have heard it, it's a story about a landowner, and a landowner needs to hire some like day laborers to come help him in his field, and so he goes at nine o'clock in the morning, and he, he gets a crew, and he brings him to his field, and then he realizes he needs more people, and so he goes back uh, at noon, and he gets more people, and he brings them back, and they still need more, so he goes back at three, and he gets more people, and he brings them back, and they still need more, and so he goes back at five, and he brings back a group of people for the last hour of the workday, and they do the work, and then when the day is done, uh, he pays every single worker the exact same amount, no matter how long they've been there. And for the rabbis, when they told this parable, they told it as a story about uh, working hard and then getting rewarded for hard work. But Jesus takes a completely different spin on the story because he's always reframing the image of God. For Jesus, it was about expanding and rejecting the view of God as a foreman who blesses by output and replacing it with the image of an insanely and incredibly generous father. The God who pays every worker the same, not because of how they work, but because of how he is, how generous he is. Want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. The parables of Jesus constantly reveal a God who is not mean or condemning, but a God whose justice comes with generous mercy and generous forgiveness and generous grace, whose kingdom is built not on power, but those things, mercy and grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' story, God is uh, not ever the mean foreman checking on uh, the work of his people. He's the generous one who writes the paycheck the same for everybody who showed up. In Jesus' stories, God is the shepherd who goes out into the brambles after one lost sheep. He's the lender who cancels a very large debt. He's the judge who hears the prayers of a stealing tax collector. He's the man who throws a party and invites people that nobody would invite to a respectable party. He's the friend who opens his door at midnight and showers a traveler with good gifts. He's, and he's the father who waits every day on his boy who took the money and ran. He's the father who sees his son from a long way off and he runs after him and he takes him in his arms and he doesn't say, what were you thinking? He says, my boy is home. Brenda Manning says, in a word, the father of Jesus loves sinners and he is the only God people have ever heard of who dares to behave this way. We are used to human love from person to person, uh, we are drawn to what we see as goodness and respectability in someone else. And I think sometimes we apply human love to God love. But when we look at Jesus and when we listen to Jesus, we find a father, uh, that the father is very different than human love. Unlike us, his love is not dependent on what he finds in us when he finds us. God's love comes with grace, not motive. He doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because of what he is, generous. I read a priest uh, say once that God does not react with love. He initiates it because he is it. Love calls forth love. God will be what God will be, and God is love. He's love. So here's what I want to do. Uh, every week we take a minute 
and we breathe. We call it Selah here. It is essentially just like a word we stole from the Psalms that to the best of our ability means a quiet pause or a holy pause. And so I want to do that. I want to take a minute. I'm going to tell one more story. I promise it's really quick. It's not as funny, but it's really quick. Um, And and, and I want to kind of set up. I I just feel like the Holy Spirit really wants to do something this morning. So um, Daniel's going to play a little bit. But um, here's a story. Brennan Manning tells the story of a priest named Edward Farrell who went on a two-week vacation to Ireland uh, in the summer to visit some of his relatives. And one of those relatives was he had one living uncle who was about to turn 80. And one morning, um, Edward and his uncle, they got up very early to go on a walk so that they could watch the sunrise. And so what they did is they walked along the shores of this beautiful Irish lake waiting on the sun to rise. And when it started, uh, he says that they stopped and that Edward and his uncle, they stood shoulder to shoulder right next to each other. And for 20 minutes, they sat in complete silence and watched the sunrise. And then he says, without speaking, they just started walking again. And he looks over and he looks at his uncle and his uncle, he sees, has this like big, wide smile, this big, wide grin on his face. And so Edward looks at his uncle and he says, "Uh, why do you look so happy? And his uncle replied, the father of Jesus is very fond of me. Why do you look so happy? The father of Jesus is very fond of me. I feel like one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us this morning is uh, some work, like a healing work in this room around the fondness and tenderness of God for his people. And so here's my question uh, for you to spend a couple of minutes. There will be some words on the screen. If they're helpful, follow along. Daniel, play some quiet music, and we're just going to be for a second. Uh, Here's my question. Um, Do you believe that God is fond of you? Do you believe that the Father of Jesus is tender toward you? That he not only loves you, but likes you? And you may answer that question, yes. And if so, my prayer is that you uh, place yourself like those priests standing on the side of the shore, basking in the glory. And you may answer, no, no way. And my hope is that you would have the courage to ask the Spirit to do a healing work in your life and your heart on the image of a God who is tender toward you. And you may say, I don't care. I don't even know if I believe any of this stuff. And that's okay, too. <laughs> it's funny to me. Uh, there, are th- there are times that Jesus... Um, acts out of frustration or he, he, these untender moments, but none of them really have to do with people doubting. <laughs> they have to do with all kinds of other things, and so there's room for that too.